the Redeemer. Sometimes we sing songs about someone called the Redeemer, or we talk about someone who redeems us, and redemption means to get back, to rescue, to take back what is rightfully belongs to someone else. And the Redeemer in the scripture is who? We did talk about it last week. It started with the letter J. It was Jesus, that's right. So our Redeemer is Jesus. Uh, oh, is that the, we got the wrong slides, Dan. Sorry. We don't need to talk about idolatry on Sunday. We're going to talk about redemption on Sunday and the Redeemer. And so that's what we do today. We celebrate the fact that Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose. He conquered sin and death. And now those who place their faith in him can have new life forever. Now, some of you have maybe read the Easter story or had it read to you, but I found a really fun video that does a really good job of summarizing the Easter story and why it's important. And so uh, we'll dim the lights here, and then let's play that video.
That's a good little summation. We have a special activity for you guys this morning, so I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to slowly, don't run upstairs, slowly just walk into the foyer and then wait, and you have special leaders who are going to lead you on a special activity, okay? So let's pray. Jesus, we want to know you more. Would you reveal yourself to us? Reveal yourself to these little ones this morning. Let the story of Easter, let it settle into their hearts. And even from an early age, before they're able to fully comprehend it, may it uh, settle into their imaginations and begin transforming uh, their life. We pray and ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, guys, up quietly, slowly out. We apologize in advance to parents of young children. We'll be sending her home, sending her kids home completely jacked on sugar. So that's my Easter confession. Sorry about that. Sorry, not sorry. <clears throat> I'd like to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. We're going to read through the whole chapter. This is Luke's account of the resurrected Christ. I'm going to read through it. If you don't have a Bible with you or uh, are having problems locating it, it'll be on the screen so you can follow along that way as well. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and 
told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us? Well, he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see me have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures, and he told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. The more I dig into Jesus' resurrection, the more difficult it becomes to teach on it because I can't hold together all the dimensionality that the resurrection invites us into. The resurrection is so monumentally unique and awe-inspiring that whenever you kind of do a one-off message on it, you always feel like you're coming up woefully short. I never feel like I'm doing justice to this event and its implications that stands at the center of human history. So the only solution I've found is essentially take a text, one of the gospel texts, and just highlight a few things there, and just put a few of the dimensions of the resurrection in front of people, and then hope and pray that over a lifetime of study, the grandeur and glory of the resurrection begins to cohere and come together. And like a diamond, with all these different sides, you can begin to turn it over in your imagination and begin to take in how grand and beautiful it is. So this morning, I'm going to use the 24th chapter of Luke as my text, and I want to talk about how 
Over the course of this chapter, Luke establishes the certainty of the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection. The certainty of the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection. Number one, the certainty of the resurrection. Um, Certainty is a strong word. I get that, saying that this text establishes the certainty of the resurrection. That's a pretty big opening gambit. Um, might want to qualify that a bit and say, well, maybe not completely in Luke 24, although I'm going to make a case for it. But certainly when you look at all of the Gospels together, there builds a pretty airtight case that what happened 2,000 years ago is as reported by these eyewitness accounts, and they are trustworthy and true. And that means the bodily resurrection of Jesus actually happened in history. Now, there are a lot of theories out there that try to undermine the gospel, this good news, by attacking um, the validity of either that Jesus really existed and died or that Jesus was actually bodily resurrected. Uh, In last Friday's summit, I highlighted a short article that deals with some of the major objections, so you can go back and look at that. It gives kind of a quick overview of why each of those theories kind of fall on their face at some point. They, They really aren't considered um, robust and actually um, valid by any measure and metric of critical thinking and analysis. But they still kind of weave their way through the ethos of our culture. Um, But I want to highlight a few things in this text that undermines one of the more popular theories that seems right now to be at the front of the line in terms of undermining and disproving the resurrection. And that is that What we find in the Bible, and specifically the Gospels, are essentially legends. They're kind of myths. They're not meant to be read literally. They're kind of mythic in scope. And they were either invented early on by a group of Christians, or over time, as stories about Jesus evolved and grew, and the tales grow in the telling, and it's kind of like a fish story. It keeps getting bigger and more robust. And then you fast forward 100, 150 years, 200 years, and all these miraculous elements, including the resurrection, are kind of later additions. So this is what I would call kind of the gospel as legends theory. Um, The problem with this theory is that it has a hard time accounting for the explosive growth of Christianity in the first 150 years. Obviously, you go back to, uh, you know, 30 A.D., Number of Christians in existence, zero. Uh, And then, with about every decade that happens after that, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 150s, into the 180s, you have an explosive curve of people claiming to be part of this movement called the Way. It's an Antioch and Acts that we first have people called Christians. Before that, they were just called followers of the Way. But there's an explosive growth in the first 150 years of Christianity. And the gospel as legends can't account for this explosive growth. And here's why. There's two ways the legend theory works. Number one is to say, well, the legends happened early on. Early on, these stories were cobbled together. They were uh, fleshed out into these amazing, miraculous stories in order to garner attention and to get people to follow them. The, The problem with that is, if this was an early myth and an early legend that got established, let's say, 15 to 20 years after Jesus died, and then people started making up these stories about resurrection. Um, 
this theory has a, this idea of, of, of um, sorry, this, um, this legend theory, that if it's an early legend, it has a hard time accounting for how the movement would have gotten traction at all. And what I mean by that is this. Early on, Jesus dies. He's a Messiah figure. He's a rabbi. He's dead. Everyone sees him die. He's crucified. He's buried. Then the stories get made up and started to be spread about how he has been raised, not in a spiritual sense, not like, oh, Jesus still lives in our hearts, and I'm committed to his cause. Like, I actually ate like a filet fish with Jesus. Like, he was there. I touched him. It was real. It wasn't a hallucination. He was actually there. Nobody in the first century would be drawn to that legend naturally. That's, that's the worst PR move you could ever make, and here's why. Anybody who's Jewish believes that there's going to be resurrection. But resurrection happens at the end of time when God's going to resurrect everybody and then the righteous to eternal life and the unrighteous to eternal damnation. So Jews believe in resurrection, but resurrection is something that happens to everybody at the end of time before the final judgment. The idea that one person got specifically resurrected now is not really anticipated in the Jewish worldview of the first century. It doesn't make sense. No Jew naturally would have heard that and said, wow, that's amazing. I've wondered if this was going to happen. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus says, I'm going to die, and on the third day again, rise again, almost every Gospel consistently says they had no idea what he was talking about. They didn't understand it. They had no theological grid for that. So this early legend to try and hook people in, Jews would just laughably dismiss it. And so would any non-Jew. Because resurrection, the idea that someone could be bodily raised from the dead into a new kind of life that could not be touched by sin and death, they didn't believe in that. They certainly believed in some kind of a life or maybe existence after death, depending on particular beliefs that you had about certain gods or pantheons. But to a Hellenistic or Jewish thinker, this story is absurdity and foolishness. There's nothing attractive about it. It just seems nonsensical. It seems like idiocy. It's just stupid. Now, one of the other proofs that Luke gives us in 24 about why this wouldn't have been an early myth, why this early myth hypothesis doesn't really makes sense in terms of why there's this explosive growth in Christianity is because you have women discovering an empty tomb. I mean, look at the role of women in this text and try and put it through, as I explained to you the context, try and put it through the lens of, yeah, they made up this story in order to hook people into this message. Luke's gospel tells us that women were the first to encounter the truth that Jesus had been raised bodily from the dead. And women were the first to be given the responsibility to go and tell Jesus' inner circle of disciples. In the ancient world, if you were spinning or tweaking a story in order to make it more attractive to new converts, one of the things you would surely not do is include women discovering and testifying about anything to do with an empty tomb. Why is that? In the culture of the first century, for both Jews and non-Jews, everybody across the board, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court because women were not seen as intellectually reliable enough to provide trustworthy and consistent testimony. This is from the first century 
historian Josephus. He writes, But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignoble ignominy of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. Okay? In the first century, no one celebrating International Women's Day. Women are second-class citizens in a way that's very difficult for us to wrap our imaginations around. But Luke's gospel highlights the fact and spends a lot of time and money. Scrolls cost money in the ancient world. You're writing all this about these women, that these are the first ones that get to testify to his inner circle that he's alive. This doesn't seem like a controversial element of the story to us, but to them it would have been. It would have been highly contra- uh, controversial. And it would have been completely counterintuitive from a, from a PR point of view. You don't lead with this. Well, this is Jesus' story. Where is all this coming from? Well, a bunch of women reported it. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a, that's a non-starter right away. We're, we're just dead in the water at that point. The first century response from both Jews and Gentiles would not have been warm to this idea that women play a central role in the resurrection narrative of Jesus. And so if you were making this up early on in order to catch people and trick people or just entice people out of good intentions to follow this grand story and myth that you're trying to um, create or modify, why would you put the message at risk and almost guarantee its universal rejection from both Jews and Gentiles by having women be the foundational eyewitnesses to this event? It only makes sense from a historical point of view. The only reason why Luke would include this is if that's the way it happened. And that was the risk. And Luke and the other gospel writers knew it. We're recording what we've seen with our own eyes. I don't see how this is going to... No one's going to believe us once they get to this part of the story. But this is what happens. I'm going to trust God. And we're going to record it. And they do record it with no spin. Now, if you're like, okay, maybe it wasn't made up early on. Maybe the Gospels were made up later. There were stories about Jesus, oral traditions, and then over decades, they kind of got layered with some miracle stories here, and Jesus healed people. And, oh, and he raised some people from the dead. And then eventually, wow, he ra- was raised from the dead. And maybe that unfolds somewhere between the, in the second century, first uh, 150, 200 years of Christianity. This should fall on its, uh, this should kind of crumble, this theory should crumble like a house of cards once we apply any kind of critical thinking to it. So there was this explosive growth of Christianity in the first 150 years, but then all the really good bits of the story got added later. Like, there was this explosive pull towards this thing called the way, but they were, at that point, just kind of stories about a good rabbi who taught good things and was a remarkable teacher and certainly inspired people and showed a particular way to live out the kingdom of God, but no miracles. Those were later editions, and certainly no resurrection. That was a later edition. Well, where did the... Why was there growth then? It's not like Jesus is the only godly rabbi walking around that time. There's lots of them. What makes Jesus any different? And that's not to dismiss Jesus. It's just to say, why would this grand oral tradition spring up and um, flower out over hundreds of years 
if there wasn't anything really distinctive about his life, any more or less distinctive than any other godly Jewish rabbi or leader or Messiah figures, there's about, I think, 60 to 100 Messiah figures that arrive on the scene about 20 years before Jesus to about 60 years after. Why, are, why aren't there lots of oral histories about those guys? What was it about Jesus? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Where does the early growth come from? If Jesus is just another rabbi, who cares? Just put him amongst the history of good people who gave us a godly example and keep on, keep it on, being Gentile or Jewish, but why would you radically reshape how you live your life and how you function as a community? Start pulling your money together and start emphasizing things like loving and even dying for your enemies. And very early on, loving and dying and being tortured and killed for saying, Jesus is my Lord. Caesar's not my Lord. I don't give my allegiance to anyone else except for Jesus. Martyrdom happens very early on in the history of the church. And if it's a later edition, why wouldn't you edit out all the idiocy that you find in the Gospels? And by idiocy, I mean the, the stupidity of the people who are supposed to be Jesus's like, right-hand men. Right? I mean, just look at Luke, again, chapter 24. Just skim through it with me and notice some things that anyone who's confronted with the news that Jesus is resurrected either doesn't get it or doesn't believe it. And these are people who were, like, in the Jesus thing. They were in the movement. Verse 4, the women don't understand where the body is. They don't see the empty tomb, and they don't say, high five, see, he said it, he did it, he rose from the dead. Wait, now we just got to track him down. They're like, we came here with spices to prepare him for long-term burial. Where's the body? Verse 8, after the angels remind them, then they remember Jesus' words. Oh, yeah, the third day. I get it. I see where this is going. Verse 11, no one believes the women. It says their words seem to them like nonsense. Verse 12, Peter goes to the tomb, still wonders to himself what has happened. Verse 13 and following, you have these two guys who are convinced that Jesus is dead. They're literally walking alongside the risen Christ, and they're just downcast, and their whole uh, worldview has collapsed, and they're just in a gloom, and they're just like, well, we had thought that he was going to deliver Israel, but we were wrong, and now people are coming up with crazy stories about how they've seen him, and yeah, it, it's just a mess. Verse 36 to 38, when Jesus comes to his disciples, they're frightened, and they think he's a ghost, and, he has to, and Jesus has to say to them, why do doubts rise in your mind? They're still like, What? I know he's here. Am I, am I going crazy? Like, what is going on here? The Gospels as legends, that theory, whether it's early or late, has a very difficult time accounting for the fact that if these accounts, if these accounts are made up, if they were specifically edited later, what would, you be, how would, what would what gain would there be by making everybody connect to Jesus? Just, just take the 24th chapter of Luke. Forget about the other Gospels. Just take the 24th chapter of Luke. If I was going to Re, I would rewrite this chapter if I was editing it later if I wanted this to be something that other people read and said, wow, look at this. This is awesome. Look at how these, faith, these faithful 11 who are still alive, look at how they responded with faith. And they're leading this movement called the church now. Totally. Like I've met Peter and I've heard about these other people. Yeah, I'm going to totally put my faith in them. Look at these heroes of the faith. Look at how much faith they had. This is awesome. Why, wouldn't, why would you keep these stories in? that made these, all these, post these first post-resurrection events look so, the people involved in them look so foolish. 
so slow of heart, so dull of mind. Because you fast forward, and within a few years, these are people who are leading this movement called the church. Why wouldn't you write, why wouldn't you edit the disciples so that they knew and anticipated Jesus was going to rise from the dead? And on the third day, they met up, and they gave him a high five, and they were like, yes, we are on the winning team. Let's go out and change the world. And the reason why Luke doesn't write that is because no one expected it to happen, and that's not what happened. Everyone thought Jesus was dead and was going to stay dead. They saw Jesus die. They saw him die by the most brutal means, and they expected him to stay dead. And when he didn't stay dead, no one knew what to make of it. Everyone had to um, start with the resurrection and now reverse engineer their entire life in light of it. And in the process, they often looked really foolish and like they didn't really get what was going on or what was next or why this is happening. And so for these reasons, and a lot more, but those are a few I wanted to throw out this morning of why I think Luke specifically in chapter 24, we can come away from studying this text and say we can be confident that what we have here are reliable, historically validated eyewitness accounts of what actually transpired. These are credible eyewitness accounts, and that means the resurrection of Jesus is certain. But Luke didn't just write about providing convincing proofs. He also wrote about uh, hope, and that's a major theme in this chapter. Luke is pointing us to hope. There's two dimensions of that hope. There's hope now, and there's hope later. Um, I want to talk about hope now for a second. I mentioned before that Jews believed in the resurrection. They believed the resurrection was going to happen. It was going to happen at the end of time. Everybody gets resurrected, the righteous to eternal life, the unrighteous to eternal damnation. And what they called that time when, the, when resurrection would happen was that was the age to come. This is the present age. That is the age to come. And <clears throat> Jews said what will make the age to come distinctive will be it will be ushered in by resurrection and the resurrection at the end of time will show that God is now intervening and bringing to an end the corrupting curse of sin. And sin and death will no longer have reign. Human history as we know it is going to be intervened with. Resurrection is that line where God says, no more, I'm now bringing these things to an end. And God is going to redeem and restore creation. So resurrection to a Jew was what was going to happen sometime in the future when God decided to restore all things through his glory and power. So now let's think about the resurrection announcement. Jesus, who was crucified, who died, and who was buried, has now been resurrected. One singular resurrection, right in the middle of human history. And this is why you can begin to see maybe why for the first Jewish believers it was really confusing because they were like, what does this mean? Well, what it meant was God's new age, this age of restoration that was coming down the pipe that Jews had always believed in, it was being inaugurated now. It was being seeded now in and through Jesus. And as Jesus, as this risen Savior is saying, now come follow me, he's not just saying, follow me on a new path of moral conduct. He's saying, follow me into an entirely new kind of life, because God is breaking into history in a new and powerful way, 
And you can step out of cycles of sin and life as you know it under the curse and under the power and penalty of sin. You can step into a new kind of life because the first fruits of resurrection have emerged. See, on Good Friday, on the cross, Jesus was humiliated, he was shamed, he was brought low, he was mocked as a king. But on Sunday morning, Jesus had been vindicated as king and lord. And that salvation he offers... See, a Jew wouldn't have thought, oh, Jesus is alive. That's awesome. That means we get to be rescued from this world. A Jewish believer would have thought, Jesus is alive. That means he is the Messiah. That means I'm saved for this world. I'm now saved for this world. To go into this world with a new mission, with a new identity, with a new purpose, with a new power. It's not just Jesus died so that I can go to heaven one day. It's Jesus died so that I can step into an entirely new kind of life empowered by his spirit. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul spends an entire chapter talking about the implications of the resurrection to this church in Corinth, this is how he ends it. He doesn't end it with saying, the resurrection's happy, so you can kind of live however you want and do whatever you want because you're going to heaven one day, and that's really awesome. This is what he says. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You have been saved from the power and penalty of sin and saved into a life where you're called in all kinds of interesting ways as God leads you to work for the glory of God and the good of the world, to be a witness and a light to the nations. And so the resurrection is about celebrating that Christ is our king. He's our victorious king. And that victory calls his followers into a mission of restoration and redemption right now. Into every sphere of life, not just the spheres that we might naturally think of as spiritual. See, the resurrection explodes any kind of a dualism where we split life between spiritual and unspiritual. Now all of life becomes an arena where we take the gospel into and say, how do we act as Christians, as ambassadors, of this new creation mission of restoration in our marriages, in our homes, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our nations, in academics, in the arts, in politics, in research, in parenting. The full dimensionality of life has to be looked at and engaged through the lens of new creation and resurrection. So the resurrection fuels us with a vision to cooperate with God in his mission to bring life-transforming hope and healing to the world knowing, and we can do that, and we live into that mission, knowing that the true king is alive, and that he's fighting with us, and he's fighting in that love and truth overcomes apathy and lies battle that we face every single day. He's empowered us to fight that fight. And so the resurrection animates your life with what Peter calls a living hope like nothing else does right now. It's not something vague. You have been saved into a living hope not from this world, but for this world. And lastly, the resurrection establishes hope for later, not just hope for this life, but hope for the life to come. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating because I think it's significant. The Bible never talks about Jesus coming back alive as his resuscitation. It is resurrection. Those are two, that's a very important distinction. Jesus was not resuscitated. Resuscitation is what happens is when someone's dead or declared dead, and then they are, they come back to life, and they live 
but then they die again because they were resuscitated. They were still under the corruption and curse of sin, but they were miraculously brought to life. Lazarus in the Gospels gets resuscitated, not resurrected, because he lives and then he dies. Jairus' daughter gets raised by Jesus, resuscitated. It's a miracle. She lived, then she died. Jesus resurrected, raised into a new kind of life that has moved through death, broken apart the shackles of sin and the corruption of sin that uh, is at play in our bodies, and now lives in a real body. You can, you can touch him. But it's a life without end. And he will never die. He has been resurrected. N.T. Wright says, resurrection is not the first musical note played again. That's resuscitation. Resuscitation is a musical note, and then you just play it again. Resurrection is the first note played at a higher pitch. There's continuity, but there's an elevation. Something's different. It's now moved to a different state. Look at what Luke reports happened when Jesus revealed himself to his inner circle in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood, or sorry, flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? Subtext, I haven't eaten in three days. I am hungry. You got, you got, got anything? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And I just picture someone awkwardly going and handing Jesus a piece of fish, and they're all just standing there. There's an awkward silence, and Jesus just starts eating, and they're just staring at him. What is going on? This is so weird. He's not a ghost. This isn't a hallucination. This is, he's like real. He's hungry. He still has good human appetites, but he's different. The coils of death and sin have fallen off him. We saw him get crucified on Friday. He was dead. We buried him, but now here he is, and he's fully conscious, not of who he was, but who he is. He's, he's, He's still, we're talking about it. He's showing us scars. See, the resurrection expands and explodes our hope for what God's future looks like. Because if you zero in on what is happening at Jesus in that moment, where he is now resurrected to a new kind of life, but still gets to enjoy food and drink and friendship, but now he's just no longer touched by sin and death. That has a that has a, just a completely reshaping effect on the hope for your life if you are in Christ. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians says, Jesus was the first fruits. His resurrection was the first fruits. It's an early sign. When you plant a garden in the spring, those first, um, I don't know, I don't garden at all. What comes up? Bulbs? Flowers? No, you put the bulbs in, the flowers come up. Whatever. I don't have a green thumb. Uh, the point is, things come out of the ground. You put things into the ground, they come out of the ground. The first ones that come out of the ground are the first fruits, in a sense. If you're a farmer, you'd call them the, like the first crop. And Paul says, that's what, that's what we're seeing in Jesus. What happened to Jesus is what Jesus is going to do for all of his people when he returns to fully consummate his kingdom. 
So Jesus is kind of like the preview, it's like a teaser trailer for the, the main movie coming down the pipe that we get to experience if we're in Christ. And that means that what we're reading about in these resurrection accounts is what we're going to experience one day. And that's pretty amazing because if you look at Jesus, in his post-resurrection state, Jesus gets to enjoy all the good elements of bodily reality. He gets to eat, embrace friends, but he gets to do it within a body that cannot be touched by sin and death. That's pretty amazing. That means one day, in a new heavens and new earth, because of what Jesus has done for me, not because of what I've done to earn it, but because I've given my life to Christ, I will be fully restored. And that means that I'm going to have two good eyes, and that's significant for me because I played a lot of basketball this summer with a lot of our teens at KCBC and uh, still managed to dominate them, obviously, with only one eye. <laughs> but I also look forward to that day when I have two eyes. You know, and the Bible says, we'll read it in a moment, there's no tears in heaven, but I think a few of our young people are still going to have a few tears in heaven because they've only experienced playing against Jeff basketball with one eye. They haven't experienced two-eyed Jeff, right? <laughs> they haven't experienced basketball with Pastor Jeff who has depth perception. And to me, I look forward to that, that my future isn't as some little point of light or disembodied consciousness that's floating around in some ethereal realm. I'm going to get to enjoy this world as it was meant to be, enhanced where the glory of God is enhanced and completely unleashed and all of the curse of sin is removed. I think, I think that is amazing. See, sometimes Christians think of heaven as the life after death, and that's true, but resurrection is the life after life after death. Resurrection is what happens when God fully restores a new heaven and a new earth. And I'll tell you pastorally why that's significant to me. It's significant because, you know, a few years ago, around this time, I was conducting a funeral uh, for a child that had been stillborn, uh, first child to a young couple. <clears throat> and that is, a, that is a place of darkness that in a lot of ways doesn't have parallels to anything else you can experience in life, I believe. But one of the great joys that I had in that time was, you know, I could look at that couple in the eye and I could say, because of the resurrection, your heart's longing to one day not just see your daughter again, but to hold her, to hold her hand, to walk with her, to play with her, that's a real hope. It's not just that you're going to be in some disembodied state floating somewhere and her consciousness will be kind of near you and you'll know her. and you'll, you'll be able to hug her and hold her. Touch my hands and my feet. Give me something to eat. That is a hope that only Christianity offers. There's no other philosophy or worldview that has anything like this at the center. Revelation 21, 1 to 5 says this. This is the final revelation of what God's going to do. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And I want you to understand how this resurrection hope impacts you who are sitting here right here this morning. Um, if you've ever, ever had the um, difficult journey of journeying alongside someone, a loved one, a friend, a family member who's dying, there's a certain place in the illness and in the disease if it reaches, when it reaches an advanced stage where when you spend time with the person, part of the mourning that you go through and the grief that overtakes you is you recognize that who that person is is kind of slipping away. And we use the expression, um, I've spent time with this person, but they're really a shadow of, the, of their former selves. That light isn't there, their personality. Death has robbed them of much of who they are. They're a shadow of their former selves. But in the resurrection, we see a hope that turns that on its head. Because in the resurrection, there is a new creation, Jeff, that is more truly and deeply Jeff than I can fully understand. There's a new creation, you, that is more fully and truly you than you can even anticipate. It's all of who you are, all of the godly, best aspects, image-bearing aspects of who God created you to be enhanced and brought to their full potentiality, but all of the brokenness, all of the immaturity, all of the sinfulness put to death. And what that means is, if you are a Christian, then presently, you are a shadow of your future self. And every day that ticks by on the calendar, every minute that moves on the clock, Every season that turns over, if you are in Christ, you are moving toward a future where you are going to step into the fullness of who you are by God's grace. A future that is more incredible than you can imagine, all because of what Jesus has done for you. I can't hold all of the dimensionality of the resurrection together. And so messages like these are frustrating for me. I can't show you the resurrection's depth in one sermon. I take comfort from the fact that, as far as I can tell, no Christian's been able to do that for 2,000 years. The resurrection stands as one of the most interesting, shocking, strange, inspiring, subversive, frightening, joyous, mind-blowing events that ever has happened and ever will happen. Been preparing for this message, I just pray, I don't, I don't want us to miss it, God. I don't, want it to, I don't want us to miss it. Because those guys on the road to Emmaus, they almost missed it. 
Jesus was alive. New creation was breaking forth. A new future was opened up for them. But they were still living as if he was in the grave. Hope is lost. Life as we know it just continues on. What saved them from that was Jesus came near. And he opened their eyes to see the truth. So my prayer this morning is that he would draw near to us today and over these next few weeks in the Easter season. And he would open our eyes and reveal his truth to us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our king. You are victorious. And yet so often we are dull. We are slow to recognize it. We don't get it. We don't see the implications. We need you to come alongside us and open our eyes. God, as we sing, as we worship you, may the greatness and the glory of Easter dawn on us in a new way. May it transform how we live here and now into a living hope that extends out forever. And it's in your mighty name that we beg and ask these things. Amen.